and welcome to Game Breaking Feature, the podcast where we analyze and discuss common elements of modern video game design and development. My name is Stephen Bennett, and in this episode, we'll be talking about tension in game design. If you've ever had sweaty palms, sore thumbs, or clenched butt cheeks, you know exactly what I'm talking about. To help me discuss this topic as a man whose life can only be described as an edge-of-your-seat thrill ride, my good friend Jared Bruner. Jared, how you doing, man? I am on the edge of my seat every episode, so... I'm just waiting for this whole thing to fall apart constantly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, the you know, when you're sitting in a chair and you're like leaning way back and then you like you almost fall, but you catch, catch yourself. Sure. That that's how I feel all the time. Like to live dangerously. That's a that's a joke I actually stole from uh, Stephen Wright. Nice. Shout out to Stephen Wright. I think we can't we, we can't afford that. So that'll be getting cut, <laughs> that'll be getting cut right out of the show. We're off to a great start. <laughs> well, we do. We, we we start all our shows out with a bang, and to help us get this show kicked off with a bang is a great guest. He's the <laughs> he's the lead designer of the Lord of the Rings living card game from Fantasy Flight Games. Please welcome to the show, Caleb Grace. Caleb, hey guys. welcome to the show, man. How you doing? Doing well, thank you. Of course, of course. How do you do? You have any opinions about ripping off old comedians' jokes? Uh, that's the only way I get laughs at parties. <laughs> all right, good. I think that's the only way I'm ever going to get a laugh on this show. So. Well, Caleb, man, I, it's it's an honor to have you here, man. I've, I've been waiting for an excuse to get you on this show for a long time because I'm a big fan of the Lord of the Rings card game that you're working on. Recently, you've kind of been working on making a digital version of it, which I saw as my opportunity to like, oh, well, now he's making a video game. Now I can get him on here. Sure. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's been a, it's been a lot of fun working on both games. Now, for our, our listeners who might not be as familiar with the uh, the card game that you make, can you briefly explain sort of what that is? Sure. Yeah. Um, so the Lord of the Rings, the living card game, the the tabletop version, it's a customizable card game similar to something like Magic the Gathering. Um, but the catch is instead of being a head to head game where you're trying to beat your opponent, instead, uh, you and your, your friends or whoever you're playing with, you can even play solo if you want. You are working together to defeat the encounter deck. So it's a story-driven game. You're, you're taking your favorite heroes of Middle-earth on a quest, and it might be to rescue someone from a dungeon or, you know, to even fight in a battle or even just to uh, get through Mirkwood Forest alive. And so the, the scenario itself is, is automated uh, in the sense that you, uh, you shuffle all the encounter cards together at the beginning and you play your turn, and that's sort of at the end of your turn, you, you decide to go commit to the quest with your characters and then you start revealing cards off the encounter deck so it might be a situation where i'm playing as you know the three hunters and i've got aragorn and legolas and gimli and and i'm sending all of them on on this adventure and i'm gearing them up on my turn with with weapons or armor or other kind of items or even allies i might add more people to their party and then i'm trying to send them on this quest and i'm revealing cards at the top of the top and it could be you know, a location like, uh, you know, the forest is getting deeper. And so here's the enchanted river and I have to find a way across it. Or it could be an enemy like, you know, a giant hill troll arrives. And now I have to figure out how to deal with that. Or it could just be like an event, you know, just something bad that happens, like the weather turns bad and starts to pour and everybody just gets soaked and takes some damage as a result or something. So it's it's richly thematic. It's story driven. It's It's cooperative. And it's just a lot of fun to really delve into that's really cool yeah i um i mean as i said I'm, I'm a big fan of it and i think part of the reason i'm a big fan of it is because i think so much of so much of the design of the game feels informed by things like video games 
-hmm. Like there's this um, sort of like cooperative adventuring feel that really comes through, you know, is really palpable in that game. That's one of the reasons I, at least I'm personally like really drawn to it. And then, and then the IP, what, what was it like sort of stepping into such a big IP for you? The Lord Uh, of the Rings. I mean, after the movies, especially everyone knows what that is. Did you feel like, did you feel a lot of pressure to deliver a, a certain quality of work when you took over designing for the game? I think the pressure I felt was really more just on the game design side. Like, uh, you know, the game is designed by Nate French um, and he handed it off to Lucas Litzinger who handed it off to me. And so when you're picking up a, a game after having, you know, really high caliber designers working on ahead of you, I think the pressure you feel is more about how do I come up with cool new design space, cool new effects or quest ideas. As far as the IP though, uh, I've never felt insecure about the IP because it's just, it's kind of a funny thing, but like, I never thought my obsessive nerd fandom of the Lord of the Rings books would ever pay off in my life beyond just enjoying it. But here at work now at FFG, I'm kind of known as like, oh, he's the Lord of the Rings guy. Like if anyone has a question about the IP, they bring it to me. And so it's just this weird twist of fate that all the time I spent like reading the books and studying them turned into like a job asset. <laughs> Take that Chad from middle school. told you lord of the rings was awesome what exactly is your role like as a lead designer what is what does that entail what's your day-to-day job kind of like yeah it's interesting it it means uh like designer developer producer these all mean different things in in different departments here um like our board game department being a designer might mean i do the initial work and pass it on to a developer who who helps to refine it, who then kind of hands it out to a producer who actually puts it all together and submits it for approval. Whereas in the LCG team where I work, we wear all those hats. So I am designer, developer, producer for Lord of the Rings means I carry a project from its inception all the way to its completion. And uh, it's the only way I've, I've ever done it since I've been here. And it's hard to imagine letting go of control of the project at any point along the way as a result. So my job is, is really to come up with an initial vision for, uh, for a product to say, like, I think, you know, for our next box, we should take the game to Rohan or something like that. And then I have to uh, put that vision together and pitch it for approval. And if I get the green light, then I need to start developing the cards and the stories and everything that will go in that box from there. Uh, I start playtesting, so I invite people that I know uh, in the area to come join me like Thursday nights to uh, to play through the content that I'm creating, and I continue to refine it through that process until I'm happy with it or until the schedule says time's up and I need to move on. And then from there, it's building it in InDesign and putting art on cards and, and then printing it all up and, and submitting it for approvals. And when Steve says he's a big fan of this, like he's not joking. Steve, Steve's a, you know, for as long as I've known him, he's been huge into board games. And so he always brings those to our game nights. And, and when we would hang out, we used to live a little bit closer together. Uh, and he would, you would bring this game along with him. And I am not huge into board games, mostly because I don't have a, a group of people to play them with. So I'm not as experienced. But when Steve brought this game and we played it together, the thing that I liked about it is that it was accessible while still having depth to it. Well, I'm glad you found it accessible. I, there's no question it has depth, but sometimes the, the complexity can be a bit of a hurdle for, for people to overcome, especially if they're not 
big time gamers, you know. So sure, I, I, probably because like what Steve said, there there were like there there does seem to be those mechanics that draw from our at least you know experiences from video games, which probably we'll get into soon. Mm-hmm. Also drew from like stuff like D and D and you know original pen and paper RPGs and stuff like that. There's so. definitely a D and D influence. That was kind of a cool conversation I had with Nate when I got started. Because uh, if you're familiar with the game, you know that there's all the iconic characters and, and items and things, but then they're all divided up into these four uh, spheres, you know, the different colors, leadership, tactics, lore, and spirit. And that doesn't have any real grounding in the IP per se. So I, I asked Nate, I was like, how did you come up with these? And he was talking about uh, D&D as, as a background for that. The idea of, well, when you put together a, Dungeons and Dragons party, you want to have your your warrior and your wizard and your bard, and you know, you want to have your healer. Mm-hmm. And so he sort of took that as the foundation for dividing up the cards in the Lord of the Rings and assigning people kind of those roles within the game. It's a deck building consideration. Yeah. Right. It, it, kind of a general rule for card games. You want to divide up the cards into different areas to make interesting deck building choices. So that's where he drew inspiration from. And I thought that's cool that you picked up on that. Now, you guys are working on turning it into a, a digital version of the game. Yeah. Um, how did how did that project come about? Yeah, I'm not sure about the exact origins because I was brought into the project after several people had already been working on it for quite some time. Uh, really? That seems surprising to me. Yeah, well, there's there's a whole lot of stuff going on behind the scenes, and I and I'm not even aware of of all of it. But definitely the fact that it was FFG's first foray into a a digital card game of, of this size meant that there was going to be a lot of blazing new trails and discovering new problems and challenges. And since I got involved, it was really fascinating for me to see how the project just continued to to like double in size just it seemed like you know month after month like the thing just kept getting bigger where originally the project belonged to our interactive team um they're the people that do all of our companion apps for all of our board games like uh mm. mansions of madness or, or imperial assault they do the compa- uh, companion apps and so originally it was like hey you guys want to try making a, a card game and you know sort of like yeah they're, they're a bunch of really uh, talented, uh, imaginative go-getters on that team. And they're like, challenge accepted, you know? But what kind of they found out is it, as it kept going, is this this thing is this thing is big. This is much bigger. Like what we're just talking about, the the vision for this game is well beyond, you know, what, what our little team of people can do uh, reasonably. So even in the time that I was working on it, it, uh, it became something that just ballooned in size to the point that we started... Uh, searching around for other video game developers to partner with. And, and eventually we founded a, a brand new studio, uh, Fantasy Flight Interactive, uh, out in uh, Madison, Wisconsin. And so now I actually haven't been on the game uh, for about half a year now. Um, since, since Fantasy Flight Interactive was founded and built up and, and fully staffed, um, they've taken ownership of the game. So there was this transition that happened from where I was kind of on loan to the interactive team. And then I was on loan to fantasy flight interactive and eventually fantasy flight interactive hired their own developer. And I could come back to the LCG team and focus on the tabletop game again. When you were working on the 
digital version of the card game, did you find that there were, it was easier to design in that space or was it harder to design or was it a little bit of both? What was the sort of that transition experience like to helping them flesh out the, uh, the digital version of the game that you're currently making on your own? Yeah, I would, I would just say that each game presents its own unique opportunities and challenges. I, I don't think one is harder or easier than the other. The, the digital game was definitely a, a streamlined version of the tabletop. So I, I like to think of it basically like, you know, the, the books to the movies. You know, if, if you're a fan of the books like me, there's a whole extra layer of depth and richness to the world of Middle Earth that they just don't have time to put into a movie because that's a, a more mm-hmm. condensed experience. And so it's kind of like the movies are inspired by the books, but they're really not the same. And it's kind of the same way with the video game. Like the video game is inspired by the tabletop game, but it's, it's really not exactly the same. So I think a lot of people, the way a lot of people like the movies, just because they're, they're a little bit easier to follow. I think a lot of people will like the video game um, for that reason, where it's just, it's going to be easier to play. Uh, First of all, just by the fact you don't have to, carry the cards with you or do any of the setup work by yourself. The game's going to automate all of that. Um, So like things like that, where I I looked at as like advantages, like one of the hardest parts for me as a designer is I'm designing a scenario is, is asking like, is this getting too complex? Are people going to lose track of all the different effects that are active on the table as more and more cards are placed on the table. And that does happen. That even happens in play tests where I will, I'll play my own scenario and I'll forget to trigger something that I wrote and I'll be like, okay, that's a problem. (laughs) Uh, And that's usually a good sign that I need to scale back some effects. But what's great about the digital game is the game runs it for you. So it can't possibly forget it's, it's scripted in there. Um, So that allows the players, you know, first of all, they don't have to worry about it. It's all done for them. And then secondly, um, they can't possibly play wrong because it's all automated. So there's an upside but then you have some interesting challenges that are perhaps, you know, I, I favor the tabletop game for these reasons, like um, just screen space. Screen space is, is real estate that's limited in a video game. You can't fit more than a certain number on the cards before you reach a point that it's you just don't want to look at it. It's too cluttered or you can't read it. So we had to make decisions like hand size limit, uh, limit to the number of characters that you can have in play, limit to the number of cards that Sauron can have in play, things like that, that we have a little bit more freedom in those areas on the tabletop game. So the pros and cons to both. Neat. Yeah. It's stuff that I certainly hadn't really considered when plus me and Steve might, might be able to play it together again over, over the internet. Dude, that'd be dope. Yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm very on board. excited for, uh, for co-op play. That's the, they just announced recently that the, the game is going to go uh, live with early access on August 28th. So there's all these pre-orders out now that you can get if you want to soon get some like you know exclusive content and stuff like that. So early oh, I, access. I've, I've got my pre-order in. Oh, have you? Which which oh, level yeah. did you go? I'm curious. Oh, I don't know. I just saw the the one that gets you the the box with the like two player starter set and it comes with the ring and the soundtrack. Yep. Yeah. That's the highest the... one, right? That's like, okay. The... I went to, I went to the top level. Well, I appreciate <laughs> I went, that. I went, yeah, I went top shelf on it. I had to climb on a ladder to get up there. <laughs> yeah. It makes a lot of sense. That product. If you're, if you're a fan of the tabletop game and you're interested in the digital game, then that's really a great deal. 
Oh yeah, it it looks it looks amazing. And yeah, I would again anyone listening to this show, I would highly recommend at least checking the LCG out. I think I think a lot of people who are fans of video games would get a real kick out of playing the game. And if you're you know interested in the digital card game, the the pre order that gets you the physical cards and the digital card game is is a I mean to me seems like a great way to go because you can get into both right like they can kind of inform each other and you can get excited about both of them and if you're not even if you're not a big like tabletop person I think playing the digital card game might get you excited about the physical card game or vice versa you know yeah I don't know it's it just seemed right it seemed you know I saw the the pre-order for that I was like oh hell yeah I'm in let's do it I'm glad (laughs) to hear it well then with that I guess maybe we'll just move right into our discussion about tension in games if anybody has played the Lord of the Rings card game I'm sure they're very familiar with but we're gonna we're gonna try to keep it mostly to video games for this discussion. Jared, why don't we kick it off with a little bit of discussion about the origins. Where did tension in video games originate? Well, tension was invented by, no, um, <laughs> the, you know, like we always say is there's a few of the topics that we discuss on this show can be a little uh, unta- intangible. I know. I like, I always like throwing it to you for the origin discussion when it's something that's very hard to explain. Like, when was story invented? Yeah, when when was um, ex- when was accessibility invented in, yeah. in video games? Yeah, you know, that stuff is a, it's always funny. I mean, we we do our best to to educate on this show, and that educate's not the right word. We don't educate anybody. Yeah, we try. We do our best. <laughs> we, we we Google some things and then pass that information along. I know via podcast form. <laughs> Honestly, but, like a Wikipedia article would just would settle all of this. Yeah, but that's no fun. Um, one of I I think. A good place to start here is you go back to once again pen and paper RPGs, early versions of D and D. A lot of people liked to refer to those as more focused on dungeon play. There was less of a focus on combat, and it was more about exploration, getting the treasure, going into the dungeon, and being actually kind of scared to death that anything around any corner could take out your entire party. Later editions of D&D, of course, sort of shifted focus and brought it a little bit more mainstream or appealed to the mainstream a little bit more with uh, a fleshed out combat system. I think just early RP would be a good uh, source to base this discussion off of. Yeah. And now I didn't see I started playing Dungeons and Dragons in fourth ed and just recently kind of started up a fifth ed campaign uh, with my family. But uh, Caleb, do, do you have D and D experience, like old D and D, like first ed, second ed, second edition, any of that stuff? Just a, just a little bit. Um, I've done a lot of role playing games, but it was usually something more niche, like a like the Robotech role playing game, because I was a big Robotech fan. I also did the Star Wars one from like the late '90s, early 2000s, which was basically uh, Dungeons and Dragons with a Star Wars skin. Um, that doesn't sound like that doesn't sound like a problem to me. No, no, it wasn't bad at all. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, uh, I was just thinking about how you guys were talking about like the origins of of tension, um, and I mean maybe you're talking more specific about the origins of tension in gaming. But as far as like why it's such a vital part of gaming, I think really just comes from the idea of storytelling, which which makes sense why it would manifest so clearly in a in a role-playing game, you know, storytelling game like Dungeons and Dragons, mm-hmm. but and maybe there's just my uh, English education background that wants to speak up. Cause I, no, 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 you're, you're, you're right on track. When, when I was kind of starting to put notes together for this, 
I was going back to like, you know, Greek philosophy on, sure. on storytelling and stuff, you yeah. know, like, I just remember a moment where those uh, pathos. Yeah. My yeah. first year out of college teaching, teaching English to high school seniors and trying to explain what makes a story, you know, beyond uh, characters, plot, beginning, middle, end, but rather like, why is it if I tell you that I, you know, got a drink of water, that's not really a story versus something else. And, and, and really the, the key ingredient to a story is tension, you know? So if, if I come and say, Hey guys, I got a story to tell you. And I say, yeah, I just, I just went to the water fountain. I got a drink. You'd be like, that is not a story. Don't waste my time. <laughs> but if you say I went to the water fountain to get a drink and there was this huge spider on the water fountain, suddenly people are interested because they're like, Oh my gosh, what's going to happen next? You know, what, what did the spider do? Did it, did it jump at you? Did it bite you? You know, like just by introducing just that little bit of the uncertain creates tension, creates a story. Every, everyone assumes the worst of spiders. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, this was all off the top of my head. So you'll forgive me if there's spider lovers out there. I just <laughs> try to think it, something people could relate to. <laughs> did it bite you? Did it ensnare you in a web? Right. Did it, did it, did it use a racial slur? What's that spider doing over there? <laughs> no, uh, Jared, what, every time spiders are brought up on this show, I have to ask you, how you doing? Doing okay. Doing okay. Just <laughs> woosa. Jared, not a spider woosa. fan? Uh, you know, when, growing up, I was not. Uh, I did not like spiders at all. A little little less afraid of them now. I have some some friendly spiders who live on my patio, and they, they eat other bugs, so I, I kind of let them be. Uh, yeah, I like I like to tease Matt, uh, you know, the uh, my coworker, the other longtime Lord of the Ring uh, designer, because he he hates spiders. Like sometimes one of one of the funnest parts about working on a project is you get uh, new art coming in. We get to see it, you know, before it's even on the cards. And, mm-hmm. you know, Middle Earth is loaded with, you know, nasty spiders. So we get all this amazing, terrifying spider art. And I'll be like, hey, Matt, you got to come see this. Uh, this new art just came in. <laughs> He'll just be like, nope. <laughs> He's like, there's a spider on it. I know it. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently, Tolkien included giant talking spiders in The Hobbit because his kids were terrified of spiders. Just out of out of child spite, he was like, "Here, kids, <laughs> I think let me read you this tale of talking spiders I invented specifically for your nightmares." I think he really just wanted to ratchet up the tension for that chapter, and so he's <laughs> like, "Well, I know they hate spiders," <laughs> and apparently, it worked. <laughs> well, in talking about tension, I mean, obviously, there is a tension like a narrative tension typically derived from conflict that goes as far back as, as storytelling and language goes back. But I think in video games, there's something a, a little bit more unique to the way that, that tension plays a role in our experience mm-hmm. in, in trying to come up with like, with, where, where is the origin of tension in video games? Like it's all, do you go all the way back to the very first video game? I mean, we've talked about it on the show before, but there's, you know, there's the tic-tac-toe game, birdie the brain. Is there tension in that game? No, because that's a that's a rigged game. Tic Tac Toe is garbage. Well, all right. If you take away the fact, don't that, at me. <laughs> if you take away the fact that Tic Tac Toe is unwinnable, I mean, if it was anything, if it was checkers or or you know, a digital version of chess, whatever it is, there's not necessarily like a narrative going on there, right? Not in the same way that there's a narrative going on in Dungeons and Dragons, or you know, pick your favorite book from history. You know, there's there's something else going on. And that's why I think it's interesting to talk about this in the way that games are designed. Video games are designed. But wasn't wasn't Pong like one of the first video games? 
Um, a Pong was a, you know, it was a fairly early one. Pong was like 70s. I should know this. Just I should be able to rattle this off the top of my head. Yeah. Birdie the Brain is 1950s. And oh, wow. This is like a supercomputer running a yeah, simulation. Pretty, yeah, I'd actually, I'd actually never heard of that until right now. I, I had never heard of it until we started doing this show. Oh, that's cool. Um, And it's... You know, it's one of those things like, does it count as a video game? I don't know. You, we could debate that till the cows come home. Till the cows come. That's not something I've ever said in life before. I think it might be the first time I've ever said till the it's, cows it's come home. It's my that's, Midwesternism that's... just oozing across. <laughs> yes. Just You're like, we got this Minnesotan on the show. Better start talking about cows and cows. <laughs> um, you know, that old that old Stephen Bennett quote from Game Breaking Feature. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I mean, we we could talk about arcade games. I mean, that's our arcades. I think had something that was kind of unique that that provided tension for those experiences. But Jared, you remember in our lore episode how we kind of struggled to come up with the definition of what lore is? Sure. Like we, I th- before we went recorded that episode, I I thought I had a good handle on like, oh, I've, I've got a good idea what lore is, and then it was like an hour and a half into that episode, I was still trying to define what it was. Well, I have even less of an idea of like how to try to define what tension is in a video game, so I think we're screwed. Okay. Well, I mean, this has been a great episode. <laughs> yeah, it was yeah. nice to meet you guys. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, you too, Caleb. <laughs> <laughs> All right, this has been Game Breaking Feature. <laughs> nah. uh, it, it is one of those things. It's like it's it's hard to just you know define it in one sentence, but when you see it, you know it. Kind of. I think. I don't know. I think this might get into some gray areas, right? Because like when we're talking about tension in in game design and Caleb, I guess I'll throw this to you first, but is there something like intrinsic about like games or extrinsic about games that, that makes them tense? Like, is it something within the game or something outside of the game or or, like, how do those things interplay to create tension in video games? Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm really thinking about it too, as you're talking about it. I'm really thinking that uh, it's so intimately tied to the element of the unknown. You know, that whenever you're playing a game or watching a sporting event, you know, or your favorite TV show, it's all about what's going to happen next, you know. And um, a lot of times the tension comes uh, as the stakes are, are raised. So, you know, if, if things are going fine and you're, you don't know what's going to happen next, you, you don't necessarily feel that tension because you feel like, well, things couldn't be so bad. But it's the more dire your circumstances, the the higher the stakes go, you know, the chance that, oh my gosh, if this goes bad, you know, we could lose the game or we could die or whatever. That's, I think, so tension has to do, I think, with stakes and the uncertainty of, of how it's going to work out. But even within that definition, there is, you know, obviously there's something intrinsic within games that, you know, causes that tension that you're describing, right? Like if you're, you're playing Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and you, you die then you have to restart the game. Mm-hmm. But there's also like these extrinsic factors that video games started to implement along the way. I mean, you know, I started to talk about the arcade earlier, but if we're talking about the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles arcade game, dying also meant you had to put more money into that game. Yep. And then there were also things like scoring, right? Like Pac-Man, you had a score and it was it wasn't just about seeing the the entire game cuz there Pac-Man had what four boards or something. Like it wasn't it wasn't necessarily about like getting to see the next thing or uncovering more story, but it was a it was kind of about this like 
proving yourself and that might be some sort of like extrinsic factor that that makes the tension of video games alluring i don't know it's again this all this stuff is kind of at least difficult for me, even though I've had like several weeks to kind of ponder this topic, it's it's hard to put down into words exactly what it is. But I don't know, Jared, what do you what do you think when you're trying to define tension in game design? Like what, what kind of springs to your mind or how do you try to define it? Well, I think what you, you said is, is a good way to say it, like, because you give any human being an objective and they're motivated to do it. Like they, they're going to try to do that to the best of their ability. And when you put obstacles in the way of that, that creates amount of tension just internally in everybody just to because they you know they set out to accomplish a goal and there's things actively working against them so i I mean i just think that's part of human nature now how about something like aesthetic you know is, is horror the same thing as as tension like obviously i feel like horror can create tension but is i think it's a component of tension i don't necessarily think that horror is tension this is you know this gets difficult for me to like define these- horror because like <laughs> you know like is suspense different than tension i could just do this all day <laughs> <laughs> i should have brought um, my dictionary for this i know <laughs> i'll just right. let Webster I mean, I think- clear this up for you real quick <laughs> i just think there's a lot of components that all go into creating tension and it, it's it's never one thing you know if if something's not working i think that that can probably kill the tension if something in a video game is frustrating, I feel like that could get in the way of being creating t- the type of tension that you want. <laughs> this this whole definition thing of trying to define what, what makes tension, well, what, what defines tension in a game design space is, to me, seems so, I don't know, like unwieldy, right? Like I ch- I'm trying to, as we're having this discussion, try to boil it down to you know, simple components, touchstones that we can use as we're we're moving forward in the discussion. Because I think there's, you know, again, components of horror that um, inform tension or tension informs horror, but I don't think they're the same thing. Um, You know, I kind of come back to these like sort of basic, I guess, fundamental principles of video game design, things like stakes and player agency and consequences. But those those are just words that I'm saying out loud. I mean, you can sort of rearrange those any way you want. And I, I don't know that it necessarily paints a perfect picture of what tension is, but we don't have to, we don't have to sit here and str- and watch me struggle or listen to me struggle as I try to come to terms with this. You guys both seem much more comfortable than I am. Well, Caleb, in, in designing a game, why is tension important for, for the design of a game? It's what keeps the player invested. Like this is, this is definitely something that I, run into when I'm developing a new Lord of the Rings card game adventure, uh, because it's, it's such a fine line um, where you, you want the player to feel invested the entire time. And in order to do that, you have to maintain a level of tension. Uh, I think ideally the tension should start out most of the time, start out a little bit lighter at the beginning and, and ramp up as you go. Um, And then, mechanical terms that means that as the player is building up uh their board state by playing more cards and gaining more strength the encounter deck is also somehow doing something to keep pace to to continually apply pressure and and keep the tension on and that's that's so hard to do because uh different player decks can accelerate uh, so much more quickly or establish themselves at a higher level and so sometimes i make a scenario that ends up being 
way too hard and then it's not tense anymore. Then it just feels like you're taking a beating or I, I err too far to the other side where the players are just able to get to a place where they are in complete control of the game. And it might be two or three turns still before they're going to win, but it's inevitable. And so the tension's completely gone. And now they're just kind of going through the motions and actually feeling a little bit bored or deflated because they know they're going to win. And so the victory has no more meaning for them. So for me, tension is something that I want to maintain from start to finish so that throughout the entire game, the players feel like this could go south at any point. But if we play well, we should be able to overcome. That's a great way to say it, I think. You know, th- that idea that at any moment you could lose or fail. You know, I think that's a, a key part of this. But is it important for players to feel that all the time? I, I don't think they want to feel it to extremes all the time. Like, uh, I, I imagine something like a scenario like the the Battle of Helm's Deep, you know, has this mechanic, this timer of, you know, it's just going to keep getting harder and harder and harder until you finally have survived long enough to, to uh, you know, defeat the scenario. So if it was just, if it felt the same tension the entire experience, I think that'd be exhausting. Instead, it's kind of fun because you feel this, this mounting tension as the game goes on, as you're getting closer to that timer. You're like, oh, if we can just hold out, you know, a little bit longer, we can make it. But at the same time, it's, the stakes are increasing and it's getting harder to do that. Is that, I don't know, that, that sensation of tension, do you think that's like fundamental to why we as human beings play games? Is that like, a, is that an experience or a feeling that we crave? Yeah, it's funny. I do think about that sometimes because like I have, I have a host of video games that I often just don't play because so many of them are so intense that uh, that it stresses me out to play them, you know. Like I, I one of my all time favorite uh, video games, an old computer game, uh, Alien vs Predator Two, was was such a great game for the way it captured the the feeling of being like a space marine right out of the movie Aliens on this planet, you know. And every dark corner could be hiding a xenomorph. And I found like I just could not play this game alone uh, when it was dark. <laughs> like I, I would. Uh, oh yeah. I loved the game, but I would when I would get done playing, I would find my my shoulder muscles and my neck muscles hurt because they were so mm-hmm. tense that whole time. And I thought, boy, this I got to you know, I got to go to bed and get up in the morning for work. You know, this was the wrong game to play right now. You know, it's interesting, right? Like, I, I, I feel like tension is maybe the most important reason that human beings play video games or games in general. I wonder if it comes from like something biological like you know back back in our you know way back in our history we had to like hunt for food right like there was this idea that any day could be could truly be our last day if we don't you know gather enough berries to make it through (laughs) the night you know what i mean and now that so many of our so many of our needs are met I'm, i'm curious if there's still a part of our brain that desires to feel that way that desires to feel that like on edge um that that you know, video games, board games, all that stuff, you know, meets those needs. I'm sure there's an adrenaline component to tension. And that's, you know, something that makes people feel good. It's when, you know, you're releasing those endorphins and you, you can, you know, 
what it feels like to succeed, at least from some other experience. So you look forward to it and you're anticipating that. And that's probably like, like I said, you know, it's a very human and intrinsic uh, trait that I think everybody shares. Now, if it also kind of makes sense to me that if tension is the, you know, the driving force that makes people want to play games and something like the stakes of, of whatever it is you're engaging with are, you know, one of the driving factors of tension. It, it makes sense to me that like a lot of AAA games, these games that make the most money of any games being released are also the ones that are like ratcheting the stakes all the way to 11, right? Like you get these, the Call of Duty games and every single one is a battle over the fate of the world, essentially. And they're going to space now. They got tired of trying to save the world. Now we're now we're like having to save the galaxy in the Call of Duty games, right? Like there's just this perpetual ratcheting up of the stakes. And I, I, I guess if, you know, if, if we're calling that the main reason people play games, that totally makes sense to me. I mean, look at Fortnite, right? It's the biggest video game probably ever, at least financially. And I think if you watch some of the, the top performers play that game, you, you see that tension, at least at the very end of the game, is about as high as it can get. You know, they're, they're building towers while shooting and jumping, sometimes flying around. Uh, and I think that that is one of the, the huge appeals of that game is that every encounter can go that way, uh, especially as the stakes towards the end get higher and you want to be the last one out of 100. Uh, that, that really, I think, probably plays into why people are so drawn to that experience. This gets into something else that I guess maybe conf- further confuses the definition of tension in my head. Because when you talk about a movie like Alien, to me, the tense parts of those movies are not the moments where you see the alien on screen. It's the quiet moments essentially sure. right before those, right? But in games, I feel like a lot of times the definition of tension gets put onto those moments of heightened action, right? Uh, sometimes, Sure. I, I mean, in, I think in, yes and in no. The, I, I vividly recall, I like, just, when we were talking about those arcade games, I was reminded of uh, the X-Men arcade game was an absolute favorite of mine. Oh, great game. Uh, and I, I would agree that, yeah, the like, the boss fights are, like, the most memorable. They're obviously the most challenging, and that's when you're you're really invested. You know, you sort of take for granted you're going to get through the level to that point. But when the boss comes out, you're like, oh, my gosh, it's the juggernaut. Are we going to be able to beat him? Um, but even just that moment right before he appears, you know, when the music's like, dun, 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 you know, like changes and, mm-hmm. and uh, they get their intro. Like, I think your, your tension almost spikes right there. Well, and you guys, uh, were both sort of talking around something that I wanted to bring up in this discussion, which is sort of the ups and downs of tension a little bit. And Caleb, you had mentioned the, uh, the X-Men arcade game, by the way, what, what was your main character in that game? Uh, I've always been a huge Cyclops fan, so I always played him. Right on. Jared, did you play that game? <sighs> I, I I think I did, but not enough to have had a main character. I think in my youth I was a Nightcrawler, but I think in my in my old wizened age I'm I'm now a <laughs> Dazzler. Nice. <laughs> I remember all my friends wanted to be Nightcrawler because his character was like short enough that you could just like duck under most attacks where everybody else got hit. Ah. It's like the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles when everyone wanted to play Donatello for like the extra pixels of reach that he had. There you go. Um, but one of the things you were talking about was sort of the way that the tension comes and goes, right? Like you're playing through the level and there's there's moments where you're fighting little dudes and then a boss comes out and it ratchets up the tension. I, I think something like that is important for this discussion of tension because now we're talking about sort of like 
dynamic tension that it comes and goes and flows and creates a pace to the game. I think about a game like Silent Hill, I think did a really good job of this because in that game, there's moments where it's essentially daytime. It's the quote unquote real world. I don't know if that's a good way to describe it, but then every once in a while, those air raid sirens go off and you're in hell. And that's when that game gets tense. And I think that game is, is a lot of fun because there are those moments where you're like constantly on edge, but they're broken up a little bit by moments where you, you get relief, right? Like that tension, Mm -hmm. the, the air is let out of the balloon. And I think if you just have something that's constantly going, that that can be a little bit overwhelming. Yeah, it's exhausting. You can't, you can't keep that up forever. But yeah. then, you know, some, but people I think have different tastes for that. Like I, I've been playing a lot of Overwatch lately and that's a game that's pretty much, you know, got its foot on the gas pedal all the time. There's very brief moments as you're completing objectives where you know that your spawn point has moved forward. You know, if, if you're on attack, your spawn point has moved forward and there's a little bit less stress to like build and use your alt in those cases. But it, you know, it's, it's not like the silent Hill or the resident evil method where you, you reach these areas of safety. Like you're, you're constantly going, going, going in overwatch. How long does a typical round of overwatch last? Would you say? Oh, I mean, when I'm playing, it's over quick. Yeah. So, I think that's part of why that formula <laughs> works then, right? Like part of the tension there is trying to survive as long as you can. And I, so I, I haven't had a chance to to play Overwatch. I'm just guessing based on those that genre of games, though. That like what what is the long game of Overwatch? Is is did they even go 30 minutes? Yeah, I would say 30 minutes is probably like a pretty typical round of yeah. the competitive. So I would say within like a 30 minute kind of game, you're not really looking for a respite inside that 30 minutes. Your respite comes at the end of that 30 minutes when you've been eliminated yeah. and you have a chance to get ready for the next game. But Overwatch is not for everyone. And I, you know, I sort of, I recognize that. Tension is one of those things I think that, you know, people have different tastes for. Absolutely. So, you know, I I don't mind that I'm constantly on edge for 30 minutes, even if there are like little moments of respite in there. Mm -hmm. But that's, but that experience is not for everyone. And one of our favorite, I mean, one of our favorite topics to go back to is one of, was it our very first episode, Jared? Was Difficulty Settings our very first episode? Yes, yeah, it was. I like to, you know, it's a topic that I still haven't fully made up my mind on, like uh, on difficulty settings, like how that fits into the discussions of many different topics that we've talked about. But do you guys think, and Jared, maybe I'll throw this one to you first. Do you think difficulty settings are a way for players to sort of customize the amount of tension that exists in their game? Um, In some examples, sure. I like... I've probably said a bunch of times in that episode and, and since then is I prefer to play a game the way that I feel was intended. I, I don't think most games get redesigned from the ground up to adhere to a harder difficulty. I think that they will just, you know, artificially make things harder to kill or make you easier to, to die. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know that that creates more tension. I think it just makes... It, it, it's there so that you have something else to go to after you beat the main game or if you want to just enjoy the narrative of, of a lot of different types of games. And Caleb, I know I know you've probably heard criticisms of difficulty in the Lord of the Rings card game that, that you work on. I don't know what um, you're talking about. <laughs> All I ever hear is how perfect everything I do is. It's, it's the beautiful life I live. 
how do you approach difficulty and do you view difficulty sort of as an extension of tension in design or is it something that's separate in your mind? No, I, I think they do go together very closely because if something is easy, you're going to have a hard time saying that it was very tense. You know, if something's easy and you don't feel you're being challenged, I don't think you're going to get that sense of tension. Uh, so we, we definitely embraced the, the varying levels of difficulty with Lord of the Rings once we realized that uh, what some considered way too difficult, others considered way too easy, and, and there is a whole spectrum. So we, several years into the life of the game, we introduced easy mode and nightmare mode as a way to try to cast a wider net for our audience. So people who want to play through the game but don't want uh, that, that high level of tension they like to play easy mode or, or for some of those players, easy mode still creates uh, a high level of tension. Some of our harder scenarios are still very challenging, even, even in easy mode. Mm-hmm. And then, and then for people who feel like they really mastered the game and it was becoming too easy and therefore they were losing interest in playing. Then we introduced a uh, nightmare mode, which made each scenario uh, much, much harder to play. And that was another way to reinvigorate interest in the game. So I definitely see them, tension and difficulty going together very, very closely. Now, do you ever get feedback from players? Because the Lord of the Rings card game is is um, a narrative-focused game. Like, you're, you're going on these quests. Each quest has a unique story to it. Do you ever find that people, that players of the Lord of the Rings card game are driven by the story narrative? Like, the do, do players ever trying to figure out trying to come up with a way to word this like do they respond to the narrative tension of that game like are there players who like will say something like oh that quest was easy but the you know like the story is what really kept me going on it or do you find that most players are more interested in like the game the game side of the gamey game side of it well what's what's interesting is uh, first of all i really hope that people are invested in the story and that they do feel those uh, stakes and the tension of, of like, you know, we're not just trying to get from here to there in this quest. We're trying to rescue this person who will die without us. You know, I hope they feel like that motivates them when they play. But as far as about hearing back from those people, I find that the people who are most likely to go on an internet forum and share their thoughts or send an email to the designer tend to be more of like the hardcore gamers so they're mm-hmm. often more into the mechanics of exactly how this works or how that yeah. works. And they're not as often the people who are really interested in the story. So I, I actually don't get very much feedback at all on the stories. And for me, I find that when I'm playing the card game, that the times when the story is the most sort of like impactful is when the consequences last beyond the specific quest I'm playing. So yeah. for, for people who aren't familiar with the card game, um, there's expansions called the saga expansions, which follow the stories from the books. And I find that personally for me, the, the narrative of those quests is, is the most uh, is a bigger draw than in the typical quest because there's a level of permanence moving from one quest to another. Yeah, I, I agree I think- that that's one of my, that's my favorite feature of that campaign that if you let a hero die, in one adventure, then they're gone for the rest of your campaign. 
and that goes to that goes to the stakes right like oh. we're talking about sort of the there's mechanical stakes to it but there's also narrative stakes yeah. that persist from quest to quest and this is something i think video games kind of struggle with right i think about a game like uh like fallout 4 that attempts so hard to have its narrative be the the driving force you know they they spend so much effort and so much time uh telling you you know like creating this situation where your son has been kidnapped and you're thrust into the wasteland and you have to rescue him. But then the mechanics of that game sort of get in the way. And and for me, that the mechanics of the game, playing the game is the thing I'm most interested in. I don't, when I'm playing Fallout 4, I'm rescuing my son from being kidnapped is like the first furthest thing from my head. But then that creates sort of a dissonance. Mm. Um, so I think maybe in, you know, like game gaming, and I've probably said this a lot on this show, struggles with the way that it joins narrative and gameplay tensions together. When the DayZ mod first came out, I had never played anything like that. I had never had any type of experience where after a battle, a gun, a shootout, that I was like literally like my hand was shaking because I had so much adrenaline uh, or just seeing someone in the distance would get my heart beating. And that's because the stakes were so high. You would spend half hour, 45 minutes, two hours, something like that, trying to gear up, get cool stuff. Um, and at any minute, some other player could be way way out of your field of view. Uh, it, could, it could end that, and you'd have to start all over again. And kind of an early example of those types of survival games, online survival games, but I had never experienced anything like that. And it was probably the most tense game I had ever played at the time. Are there any games? So I, I think I think the stakes are absolutely 100% important to to how tension factors into it. But but in Day Z, there's not really a narrative tension there. That's almost exclusively sort of this like intrinsic gameplay tension, right? Like all sure. of, all of your goals in that game are self are self made. Are there any games that you can think of where the narrative tension? has been a big draw for you or the, or they've done something creative to make the narrative more tense. For some reason, PET comes to mind that the the teaser for that Silent Hills game that's never going to come out by Konami. That game was tense from top to bottom and all you did was circle a hallway. You would go through a magic door, it would take you back to the beginning and you would just keep doing that until something changed and you'd have to kind of figure out some very obtuse narratives that were happening. Uh, which were delivered through like radio news stories and phone calls and, and environmental cues, uh, and that that's how that kept the tension up. And then I, I don't want to, I still don't want to spoil that in case anybody gets to experience it for the first time. It's it, that is another kind of magical experience when you when you play through that for the first time because of that reason. Yeah, P P T was a man the whole time. What this is a, <laughs> this is a running is that, this, is that another reference to a, a, a film spoiler. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the crying game. Okay, I got this you. is like this is now a running bit I'm doing on the show. Whenever someone doesn't want to spoil something, I'm just going to relate it to a uh, a movie, <laughs> a movie spoiler. Okay, <laughs> how about how about you? Are there any games that you've played where the narrative, like the tension of the narrative, is something that's affecting to you? Yeah, I, the well, well, Jared was talking about. I was I was really thinking that. Um, I think for me to to feel like the narrative is really lending the tension. It's probably going to have to be a role-playing game where I've spent a lot of time with these NPCs and they've been built up so well to have their own personalities and their own unique contributions. And we've had 
cool moments together. So there's almost this, you know, simulated relationship that we have that if I'm invested in that relationship and now that person's life is on the line, then, then, then the narrative has actually succeeded in building tension for me. Um, But that's kind of a tall order because, well, first of all, it's really hard to do that authentically in a, in a video game because they kind of have to, when they're programming that character, they have to take a kind of a gamble on what kind of people are going to be playing this game and what kind of relationships are they looking for with their NPCs. And Mm -hmm. so for me, it's kind of like lightning in a bottle when they get it right, that you, uh, you find that one NPC that you just really connect with that you're, that you're drawn to that you're like, Oh, I want to make sure to keep that person alive. And then if they happen to be in jeopardy, you're like, all right, this game just took it to the next level. Now, now I really care, you know, now I really want to, you know, do well in this moment and succeed. Um, So I think I've played a few games that have, that have at least come very close to that. You know, like uh, I really liked Mass Effect 2. I thought a lot of the Mm. NPCs in that game were, were just really very cool. And so the, the game, one of those things um, that's, that's Bioware, right? Did that game? Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the things they do really well as a company when they're, because they've done a lot of my favorite uh, RPG style games. They, they do it really well where they, they build up these characters and eventually, you know, you have to make a choice between this one or that one or something. And it's, that's a really tense moment that maybe, maybe in that moment, all you're really doing is, is in a, in a, a conversation tab, you have to choose one or the other, but that's a very tense moment, you know, just because of how they built them up. I think, at least for me personally, for a narrative to to feel tense, I have to have some agency in how that narrative plays out. Like I have to be able to affect the way that the that the story goes in order for it to feel tense to me. Because otherwise, I'm just playing a game until they tell me what the next story thing is. Right. So I I think it's great. You should play until dawn. Because technically, every every character can make it out of that, but most of the time, that's not what's going to happen. That's just not the you know games like that and like the uh, the David Cage games. Those ones just don't, for whatever reason, appeal to me. Like the just sort of choose your own adventure nature of those games is not something that that really draws me. Something like Mass Effect, I think, is a great example. You know where that was what I was going to sort of bring up as an example for this, because you do get you do get attached to those characters so those become the stakes and then the narrative there's narrative tension because you know that your decisions mean that some people are going to make it out of this game and some are not and and that's where that tension in that kind of game lives i don't know i i feel like this is you know we could dive real deep into this but how has tension sort of changed over time in video games caleb like are are there games that you've been playing recently or yeah I mean maybe not super recently but I mean, are are there games that you've played that um change your mind about the way that tension is used in a video game or that move away from this idea of tension in design well, that is that that's a big question because I'm thinking about like most of the games that I played uh as a kid were a lot of side scrolling you know Super Mario Shinobi you know, really straightforward fare where the tension really just came from, you know, can I make this jump this time? You know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Or am I going to fall in the hole and have to start the level over again? Obviously, the graphics have improved and the ability to do cutscenes and things like that probably make it easier to build up those characters and your attachment to them. But that's, it's probably a better question when you guys could answer if you did play those old RPGs or Final Fantasy games to, to say how you think they've, they've evolved. Well, 
if they're more successful at creating tension as a result. Well, it's you brought up a really good point, which is cutscenes, which, you know, in the grand scheme of video games is, I would say, a newer invention, although, you know, now we've had them for 15, 20 years. But I think I think you're touching on something, which is the fidelity of storytelling in games has improved. Our our our, yeah. our potential to tell stories has improved. And with that, I think things like narrative narrative tension have have become more prominent or more highly pursued by developers might be a better way to say it. But. Yeah, I honestly, I don't ever remember being invested in any character in a game uh, on the, on the Sega, you know, or the Nintendo, like, you know, I'm thinking of like double dragon where like the whole premise is you're supposed to rescue your girlfriend. I don't even know her name. You know, like it didn't, yeah, exactly. it didn't really factor into the tension or the story. It was like, what are we doing again? Why are we fighting all these guys? Oh yeah. Uh, our girlfriend got captured. I'm like, who is she? My girlfriend, your girlfriend. I don't know. <laughs> we'll fight about it later. <laughs> I think in earlier video games, tension was more something that was manufactured by, you know, sco- high scores and time limits and your, your, the funds that you were willing to put into the arcade mm-hmm. machine. Yeah. Um, Today, you know, we like you said, there's a lot more fidelity in, in narrative tension because you can tell those bigger stories. I just finished uh, God of War, the new one for PlayStation 4, and that game has tension throughout in certain ways. It's it's very much about a relationship between a father and son. And, you know, at the beginning, it starts out a little shaky, and it's kind of about that journey of, of, of you know, getting to know each other. And I thought that was really effective in juxtaposition to, you know, the grand story of these huge gods that they're encountering and, and the, the magic in the world. Um, it, it did a really good job with that. So, yeah, it has changed over time in the sense that it is now something different. But there are still those games out there that are, you know, chasing the high score. Stuff like, you know, Super Meat Boy is you're, you're trying to beat the game in the most efficient way possible. And that's a that's a type of tension, too. Yeah, for me, I mean, it's the the old standby for me. Proteus, uh, I think, is a great example of a game that that moves away from tension. Now, I'm not going to bore people too much with <laughs> going deep into Proteus. People, they're they got to be tired of hearing me talk about this game, right, Jared? I know you're tired. Of you know me my feelings. <laughs> I know, I know your feelings. But is it a game? Like, is Proteus is a game that basically said we're we're going to design a game with no tension? Right. Like it's going to be an interactive experience where there's no stakes. You have very little agency in the world and there's no there's no consequences for your actions, really. I had a different experience. I felt tension playing that game because I kind of went into it blind other than what you have told me about it and stuff that I kind of absorbed from people when it came out. But I the whole time was waiting something terrible to happen. Like my expectations were Mm. there is going to be some twist in this game and it's gonna and I, I was waiting for something to uh something to come out at me something to change to, but then it never happened and i think that's maybe i don't know i mean they got a it got a reaction out of me so i guess that's if it, its goal was to be a piece of art then maybe it succeeded in that way but that's why i i don't covet it as a video game as much as you do well and and you said like you called it art and that's what a lot of people are quick to jump to when they're describing proteus right is like oh it's not a it's not a game it's interactive art and do you think that that lack of tension specifically the lack of tension is sort of the 
cutoff point for what makes a game a game. Like for a game to be called a game, is tension a necessary component of that? Um, I don't know. Are puzzles games? Because puzzles aren't always tense. That's interesting. I, I personally would not call a puzzle a game. You know, not unless there was a, a timer on it or something like that. The old school point and click adventure mist. Is that a game? Because there's I mean, is there tension to that? I would say there's narrative tension in that game. Okay. Yeah, that one that one I say that I would say the tension comes from trying to progress that story. But like Caleb was saying about like is a pu- you know, like is a puzzle a game? And he says, No, I would agree with that decision. And then Caleb said, if you add a timer, then it becomes a game. And I think that's absolutely true because now there's some sort of stakes. There's a consequence, right? Like when the timer runs out, if you haven't completed the puzzle, you've failed. And then it's a game. So are we are we saying then then to qualify as a game, there has to be tension? That's the question I'm asking you. <laughs> I don't know. But I'm asking you actually like, here to solve there, anything. There, there is anyway. I, I was trying to think just now too, like, so my my definition of game has been challenged by things like apples to apples. You guys familiar with mm-hmm. that one? Oh yeah, you know, cards against humanity. If you're into the dirty version, right? Yeah. Or um, I remember when I was doing youth ministry, my students taught me this uh, this well, they call it a game, but it's basically like a improv theater. You know, where you you just kind of set up a play about nothing, and you can tag in at any time and. You, mm. you freeze what's happening in the play and you and you come and you take someone else's spot and then you you improv the next line and, the, and everyone just has to riff off that and the whole point is just to make each other laugh you know yeah. so they, they call it a game for that reason but there's no there's no stakes unless it's just embarrassing yourself with a, a bad joke like I did you know <laughs> or you know that's there's no timer there's no winner you know so some of those, I, I guess I tend to think of those as party games, and I kind of lump them into a whole other category. And, and Apples to Apples is an interesting example because that's a, I would say it's a game because I, it's governed by rules and there's an objective. But those rules are kind of abstracted when it's up to the players of the game to decide how, you know, which card they're going to choose from the group. You know, there's not really like a hard and fast way to play that game. Yeah, I guess there really you could argue exploit. the tension comes from will they pick my card? I don't know. I and this is me, you know, this is getting like way out there in outer space. Like I I don't know that there's a good answer for this. I have always defended that Proteus is is a game and not just interactive art, but now that we're doing this episode now that's all called into question because I think it <laughs> might I think I think there might be a good argument to to say no, it it's not a game. It it is just art. You know, this whole conversation has reminded me of uh, the very first episode of Deep Space Nine. You guys watch Star Trek at all? No. I never got into Deep Space yeah, Nine. That's a okay, but I just couldn't be a proper nerd if I didn't bring up Star Trek on a podcast. <laughs> um, and you wouldn't be the first. Yeah. So what's what's really neat about that episode that that for me kind of made it a good Star Trek episode is that it starts to get into it. it almost gets into this question of like, why is tension important? But it's not, you know, they're not talking about games in this episode. Rather, it's this, you know, kind of like uh, sci-fi fantasy moment where the main character, Captain Sisko, has been transported to an entirely different dimension where he's trying to explain human life to beings who exist sort of outside of time. So they don't, they don't like, they're not born, they live and they die. They just exist outside of time. 
So they can't even understand consequences and, and choices the way that, that we do. And so Cisco is trying to explain to them what it means to be human, because that's what they do on Star Trek. And he uses baseball as an example, because he's a baseball fanatic. And he's explaining why baseball is such a great game, because when the batter gets up to the plate, you don't know what's going to happen next. It's that tension, that question of like, what's going to happen? Is he going to strike out? Is he going to hit a home run? You know, uh, that's what it means to be human is that you don't know what's going to happen next, but you know that eventually the game is going to end. And that's what gives it all meaning. And uh, so the whole time we've been talking about this, that's been in the back of my mind of like, yeah, what makes a game, I think, is that it's it, it's directly connected to our experience as human beings, that there's a beginning and an end. There are consequences. There's uncertainty. And as a result, there's tension. So Proteus is life. <laughs> that's why you took away from it. No, that's, I think that's a really good example. It is funny, right? Like, it, <laughs> we're talking about does tension give a video game meaning, but does tension give life meaning? Maybe it does. And, and maybe this goes back to sort of that, that biological imperative I was talking, I was rambling about at the beginning of the show. No, I think you were onto like, something in, in the sense that, yeah, why do we play games? Well, because they're entertaining. You know, with without mm-hmm. tension, it's hard to be entertained. Like going back to my example of what makes a story, there has to be some kind of tension, some kind of conflict or something for it to be a good story. Otherwise, the story is boring. So if your life doesn't have any kind of tension, well, then your life might be a little bit boring. Well, I, I guess maybe this this is a good time to, as we're uh, getting super philosophical, might be a good time for us to... <laughs> Bring this con- this conversation to a conclusion. I guess maybe giving the whole conversation meaning. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, well done, Caleb. How can the video game industry improve on the way that they implement tension in game design moving forward? Do you see room for growth that hasn't been explored yet in in the video game space? How can the video game industry improve? They can call me. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> That is, is that something you is that something you would get into? Would you would you like to be more involved in in video game making? I don't know. Uh, actually, video game design is very different from tabletop game design. And my experience working on the digital game was something that I really cherish. That was like super fun. This is not like a, a lead up to a but. It was terrible. Like I really like it. The people I got to meet and work with, and the behind the scenes experience, all of it was was awesome. Um, but I do think I'm, I'm better suited to tabletop design, uh, particularly because in tabletop design, if there's something that I don't like that I feel is not working, I can just change it right then, you know, like just, I can yeah. cross out what it says on the card and write something different. Whereas video game design that to do something that simple involves explaining it to the programmers who I have learned are very, very literal and need very, very specific directions, um, which is not a fault. That's a good thing. Just, uh, oh, uh, I worked, I worked in QA. I know exactly what you're talking right? about. So, and, and it takes time to implement and then it doesn't always work the way that you want it to. So for that reason, I'm probably happier doing tabletop that said, yeah, if someone came and said, Oh boy, we'd really like your help with this project or that project. It'd be interesting. I just, I don't, I'm pretty busy where I am right now. So I don't really see that happening anyway, to make video games better. 
I don't know. I feel yeah, like I'm sure. really behind on video games at the moment. I'm still working through my Xbox 360 collection. Even if it's not like totally up to date, but is there something like in the way that video games address tension that you think could be improved upon, even if it's drawing from experience from like the tabletop card game or, or something like that? Uh, well, just I guess all I can really speak to is like my personal preferences. Uh, I've noticed a growing trend to have more and longer cutscenes to the point where I barely feel like I'm playing a video game anymore. And I'm just kind of pressing a few buttons in between movie episodes. And that, that kind of wears on me after a while. And I actually, I really, I find I like turn-based games a lot more. So just for me personally, I would love to see more turn-based games in the style of, of XCOM where um, you have a chance to get connected to your character or characters and, and get invested in them so that each movement that you make with them carries meaning because you realize you're walking them into danger. And so I guess it has both like the gameplay tension, but also the narrative tension. And Jared, how about you? How can the video game industry improve on, on the way that it implements tension in, in video game design? So a friend of the show, Jennifer Scheuerle, she she did a whole talk about hidden tricks in video games that developers use that you don't you wouldn't really know. Um, and she's actually going to release a book with a lot of the stuff that she talked about. One, one of the things that comes up that I think of that I took away from that was mechanics in games where you're always kind of like on the brink of death. Like every encounter can be... Is, is tense because the way that the game adapts to your your, your play styles, um, giving you a little bit more health or making that little last tick of health last a little longer. So it's always you're always just there making it super tense. And when you get through it, you have that big sigh of relief. Like to me, that's one of the best experiences of games. Yeah. And I guess to sort of piggyback on that, like I, I think that video games could improve on their use of tension by finding ways to more closely weave Things like the narrative of the game and the gameplay of the game. I think right now, so much of the way that story is communicated in, in games is separate from the gameplay itself. But finding ways to marry those two sides of tension into a single experience, I think, will make for more engaging experiences in video games. And then also, I think removing sort of the arbitrary methods for creating tension in games. So much of game design is... is still informed by the way that arcades were designed, right? Like you were designed to die in an arcade because they wanted to get more quarters out of you, or you were going to run out of time on your game because they wanted to get more quarters. And I think we're still tied very heavily to those ideas where I think more creative ways could be thought up and implemented where you're not relying on such arbitrary things as just a timer or you die and you start over again. One one thing I, I guess I would like to add, um, you know, while I think there's always going to be a place for the Dark Souls and the and the Bloodborns of the world, uh, but give people the option to choose how much tension they want in their game. I know we could go back into you know, the whole discussion on difficulty settings, but um, I, I think that people have different tolerances for that. And if I think that the same game could appeal to a lot of people based on their preferences. Uh, and I don't know that that's an easy fix. I think that's probably very resource intensive for studios to, to do, but uh, it'd be neat to see that going forward. Yeah. I, and again, not to go down the difficulty road. Uh, God, I'm, I'm about to jump into like a, a bunch of snakes bringing this up, but there was the, uh, the South Park game where they made the difficulty setting sort of based on the color of your character's skin. Now I don't want to. I, I definitely don't want to open up the debate about if that was tactful or anything like that. Like people can make up their own minds on that. 
what what I thought was interesting about that decision was that it wasn't going to make combat any more difficult. It was going to make your experiences outside of combat. At least this was the promise before everything kind of got shuffled around and muddied. But the idea was that it, combat itself was going to stay the same, but your experiences outside of combat were what got changed. And I think that's an interesting idea. Again, I, I, I'm just using South Park sort of as the jumping off point. So please, if you have your own opinions about that, um, I mean, you're, you're more than welcome to share it. I, I, I would love to hear people's opinions on that, but that's not what I'm, <laughs> that's not the point of what I'm trying to make. I'm not trying to make a value judgment on that specifically. Listeners, if you have any feedback about uh, tension in game design or any of our previous topics, you can always reach out to us at podcast at gbfeature.com or connect with us at gbfeature on Twitter. I'll be uh, on the edge of my seat waiting for those. Oh, good, good, great pun. Great Bring pun. it back all around. <laughs> Isn't that my job? Aren't the bad puns my job, Jared? I, I don't want to let you have all the fun. <laughs> okay. Well, please, and, and do, please reach out to us because we love hearing the feedback, including this message. Jared. We had a comment on Reddit. Um, on Reddit? Someone, I, yeah. Uh, I had made a comment off of someone talking about, uh, they were talking about something, one of our episodes. Oh. And I chimed in. I was like, "Hey, if you want to, if you want to listen to us talk about game design, check out our podcast." So someone did that, and they got back to us, and they said, "I am no native speaker, and I was surprised to hear such a well-structured site with so many guests, which are involved in the video game industry. That wasn't what I expected before I clicked your link. Your podcasts are pretty great from the audio quality, and the host Stephen Bennett is a pleasure for the ears." That was from Clunky Two on Reddit. Aww. So that, well, we appreciate that stuff. Yeah, I really appreciate that. That's super nice of that person to say. I uh, sometimes yeah, you hear yourself in recordings and you think like, oh my god, that's the worst voice I've ever heard, and it's your own <laughs> voice, you know. Like sometimes I don't know, I don't know how I sound. So I appreciate I appreciate that this person thought that I sounded good. I'm sure it's not an opinion shared by everyone, but I love hearing it. So please, yeah, if you if you have any feedback of your own to give to us, if you like my voice, hate my voice. Want to tell especially me your thoughts if you hate on his voice? Especially yes, <laughs> or if you have uh, very specific thoughts on how South Park handled difficulty settings, please send those along. We do like hearing all of it. And again, the uh, email address is podcast at gbfeature.com. That's going to do it. Before we get out of here, I have to thank our guest, Caleb Grace. Caleb, man, thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. It's been a pleasure having you here. Thanks for asking me to be on. Oh, of course, man. Like I said, I'm a, I'm a big fan, and I was I was just trying to find a good opportunity to get you on the show. I appreciate it. Where can people uh, find your work? How can they keep up with you? I'm not huge on social media, so if if you want to see what I'm up to, the best way is probably just go to fantasyflightgames.com and look at the Lord of the Rings card game. Uh, there's lots of news articles and spoilers every once in a while. I do like uh, maybe I might write an article myself or do a, an interview or something there. The uh, Steam game is going to be released on Steam in August, right? Yeah, August 28th is when uh, it goes to early access. The, uh, the game itself will be free to play once it goes to a full release. The early access is, uh, it does come with a price tag. And, and like I mentioned, there's the, the different entry levels. So I, I, you'd have to look at the Steam to know for sure. I believe like the, the lowest one is, is something like $7.99 or something like that. Gets you some exclusive content and access to the, the early build. Come on, just jump in at the $100 level. <laughs> um, and I'll also throw out a plug for the the physical card game itself because you guys just released the Wilds of Ravanian for the the card game, which is a deluxe box expansion for the Lord of the Rings card game. 
and uh, it's a good expansion. I think if you don't have the game, I think this is probably a great expansion to jump in at, get the core set, and get the newest deluxe box, because I think so many of, especially on the player card side, so many of the cards just, they, they work so well, like within the uh, the archetype of the deluxe box, but they also couple so well with the cards from the core set. So I, I think it's a great time to jump in if you're, if you're at all curious about the uh, the physical Lord of the Rings LCG. Definitely do it. It's a it's a blast, and it's a great way to get together with friends and have a good time. Absolutely, thank you. Of course, of course. Happy to happy to get the word out there. As a reminder, we release new episodes of this podcast every two weeks. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss anything. If you like what we do and want to help us out, head over to our iTunes and give us a review. I want to thank Kyle Clark for making our theme song. You can check out his podcast. This is Rad on iTunes. I'm Stephen Bennett. That's at Stephen underscore the gamer on Twitter. I'm at Jared Bruner on Twitter. We want to thank you, the listener, for taking the time to listen to us chat about video games. This has been Game Breaking Feature. Remember, it's okay to disagree. Just don't be a dick about it. All right. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Yeah.